good to be here with you this morning. And um, that uh, the song just reminds us that um, life isn't simple, right? That uh, there, there's a battle. There's things that are against us, and uh, ultimately, God wins. Last week in our sermon series, we saw how Jesus was described as the light of the world. That was John chapter 8. And if you kept reading through the chapter, you'd see that this announcement sparked a conversation about Jesus' identity. You can't just walk around saying you're the light of the world and not think you're going to have people question who you are. People were saying, is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Is he even something greater, more than the Messiah? Then in in chapter 9, if we were to keep reading down through John, in chapter 9 we find this story that is somewhat comical, really, but it is overwhelmingly tragic. Uh, It is a uh, a man who is born blind, and his disciples, Jesus' disciples, point to him and say, Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? And so there's some assumptions there about suffering and, and sin. Jesus says, no, just because he's blind doesn't mean that somebody committed a specific sin. But Jesus is not somebody to sort of utilize someone's misfortune for his own purposes and then ignore them. And so he heals this man. The man goes to the temple. He, he starts telling people that he's been healed. And he's very excited. You can imagine. Okay. Well, the religious leaders aren't quite as excited. So they're like, well, who healed you? And he's like, I don't know. I was blind. Um, and, and, but whoever he was, he's a good man. And they're like, no, he can't be a good man. It was that Jesus fellow, and he's not a good man. Didn't this happen on the Sabbath? See, he's really not a good man. So we have this discussion going on again about who Jesus is. Ultimately, uh, this this. A blind man or formerly blind man's parents are brought in. They say, can you confirm that he was born blind? He's not just pulling a trick on us. And they're like, well, it looks like our son. And he was blind when he was born. But this man can see something's changed. Well, they don't like the answers. And eventually the Pharisees actually kick this man out. He's to, he's to have nothing to do with them because he wants to continue to praise Jesus to speak of his compassion and his power, even though he doesn't know anything about him, except that he can now see. But the same compassion that prompted Jesus to heal this man in the beginning, when he is kicked out by the the Jewish religious leaders, prompts Jesus to to come and find him when when he hears of his circumstance. And, and they have this conversation, and Jesus is like, yes, I, I healed you. I'm happy to do that for you, and uh, glad to do that. And, and the man says, you are from God. I believe you are from God. And so there's this confession of faith in Christ and commitment to him. And, and then by the end of the chapter, Jesus makes this statement, 
that, that he says the Pharisees are the ones who are blind. You see, he, he says there's a blindness that is worse than physical blindness. Jesus says, physical blindness I can fix. Physical blindness I can heal. But the blindness of your hearts, your unwillingness to examine or to admit, to acknowledge the evidence in front of you that God sent me to, to acknowledge who I am and my relationship with God. He said, that is a blindness that I can't fix. It's worse in that sense than the, the physical blindness that this man has experienced since birth. And so his closing words at the end of chapter 9 are, if you were blind... You would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. Okay. So if they would acknowledge their limitations, um, he says, I, you could be forgiven. It wouldn't be held against you, but because you claim to have this sight and all understanding, then that's a, a special kind of stubbornness. And so it's within this context of these two chapters of conversations about who Jesus is that we arrive in John chapter 10. It was just read for us, so I won't read it again. But it's this story of the sheep. And, and Jesus here describes a pretty typical rural scene. It was apparently common for small villages to have communal sheep pens. Okay? Uh, everything was on a smaller scale back then. There was, you know, you wouldn't have 100, 200 sheep in a, in a flock. It would be something, I imagine, closer to a dozen, maybe two dozen, but, but not huge by and large. And so different families would have their own sheep and they would bring them at night into a communal pen for safety. Something like this one on the screen. And there would be a, a person, you can see the hole in the wall there, there would be a person who would spend the night in that hole as the, the gatekeeper. Uh, perhaps they were paid and that was their, their job to, to stay there for the night. Uh, perhaps they were one of the shepherds um, as they just took turns caring for their sheep. But in the morning, the shepherd would return, and you may have three, four, five different flocks of sheep in there, and there's this task of sorting them out. Now, I grew up around a lot of, a lot of sheep and sheep farmers, and, and the way that we would sort them out is that there would be a dog involved, and the dog would run over the backs of the sheep and nip at them and bark at them and try to get them sorted and cut and lead them out or, or chase them out. But Middle Eastern shepherds handled things a little bit differently, uh, a little less violence, which we suppose was good for the sheep. Um, and so we're given this description of how the shepherd would return to the pen and then he would call the sheep. And the sheep would recognize his voice and come to him. And then he would lead them out of the pen 
And he would know them well enough to be able to affirm that they were all there and then off they would go on the day looking for, for grass and water. Even when they went out, the shepherd of the, the day didn't put them in a fenced field uh, like I'm accustomed to seeing. They were, the, the, you know, re the reason they can be put in a fenced field is because there's a whole lot of grass in that field that needs to be eaten down and when it's eaten down you move them to the next field. Uh, there just wasn't that much pasture in the different parts of Palestine. It, it was more, it was closer to desert than to lush pasture. And so the shepherd's task was to spend the day walking with the sheep um, up on mountainsides and different places looking for whatever food they could find. Um, and so over time, as he spent days with them, um, with no iPhone, no soundtrack, no apps to entertain himself, um, he got to know his sheep, gave them names, learned their um, nature, and so he, he was familiar with them, and they learned to recognize his voice, which is why they came to him when he called them in the morning. So consider this sort of picture that Jesus describes, which is all about recognition. Uh, the sheep recognize Jesus, Jesus recognizes the sheep, and, and why he may tell that story in the context of these previous two chapters about who his identity is. And so he begins this story speaking specifically to the Pharisees. But whether genuine or because they didn't approve of his message, verse 10 concludes and says, the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Why is he talking about sheep? And so Jesus continues in verses 7 through 10 uh, with more explanation. And it's here that we find our first I am statement. I am the gate for the sheep. In verse 9, I am the gate. Now I think this is one of the more difficult images for us to grasp. Okay, There's a clear connection between bread and life. There's this idea between light and vision. Uh, the things that we have said that, that Jesus has already said about himself. But a gate, why not a table or a chair or some other inanimate object? Uh, it, it's a little difficult to make that connection at, at first blush, I think. But there are several different trains of thought that come together in this story of the sheep, the pen, and the shepherd. And the first, as I mentioned, is this idea of recognition. It's still a factor. If you can't recognize the gate into the sheep pen, then you won't be safe. Okay? You'll be left outside the gate. You'll be left outside the pen during the night. And, and Jesus tells of the robbers, of the thieves that come to steal and to kill and to destroy um, whether they be um, animal predators or human 
uh, humans looking for, for food or wealth for themselves. Um, you wanted to be inside that pen at night. So you need to recognize the gate in order to, to get in. And so Jesus accuses the Pharisees of offering false hope, false gates, false paths to God. And while they're doing that, they're also rejecting Jesus, who in a very real sense provides a doorway to eternity with God. Okay? And so Jesus is that gate. The second way that Jesus uh, functions as a, as a gate is that there's an element in which the door provides protection. Even if you're like me and you grew up in a part of the world where you didn't lock your doors at night on your house, okay? um, I do now, don't, don't try to come looking for anything. Um, but but if you, even if you grew up, we at least had the doors shut. Okay? It wasn't very often, it had to be a really hot night and it didn't ever get that hot for us to actually have the doors open at night. And we shut the doors at night. We lock the doors in our houses at night. Why? Because it gives us a sense of security, a sense of protection. And so Jesus protects his sheep because he's the gate. And so that's going to be uh, the focus of our growth groups this week as we delve a little bit more into that uh, imagery of Jesus as the protector or the protective gate. Robbers and thieves aren't going to get past him. They're going to have to sneak over the walls. And even if they get in, then good luck getting the sheep out because they'll recognize or not recognize the robber. Um, raise a ruckus, wake the shepherd, and he's there to protect. Jesus' presence at the gate provides familiarity and it provides security. So I think that's a fairly simple application there in terms of how Jesus functions as a gate. But I want to delve into this um, picture that he portrays a little, a little further. Uh, the, the imagery of the shepherd calling the sheep and the familiarity, the no knowledge of one another that the shepherd and the sheep have. Through all of um, through all of these I am statements, John has emphasized that God knows us and that we can know God. That God is imminent. That God is close to us. That God is among us. We saw last week that in Jesus, God had become human and tabernacled among us. And so John constantly reminds us that God lived on earth. God was among us, not distant from us. And so um, it saddens me when I think of how many Christians have this, or, or non-Christians, have this image of God as someone up there, up in the sky, in heaven, far away, with a big telescope, looking down on earth just to see what's going on. Because God wants to be um, imminent and intimate with us. 
But Peter, you might say, that was then. Jesus doesn't live in close proximity with us now. You might argue. And if you argued with me that way, I'd point out some passages for you to consider to assure you that that God wants to be as close to you now as he was when he walked the paths of Galilee in the form and the person of Jesus. And so that's where we're going to to spend just the, the rest of our time is with this idea that God, the, the, the familiarity that we see between Jesus and his sheep, between the shepherd and his sheep, Jesus and his disciples, is a familiarity that we can experience today, that God wants to experience today with each of us. Let me read to you again verses 2 to 5 from John chapter 10. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. I think I could spend a lot of time talking about the idea of what it is for the sheep, for us to know his voice. I think that would be a really good conversation. And we'll talk next week about Jesus as the good shepherd. And that, I think, is also going to be a good conversation. But for for this moment, I just want us to notice how well the shepherd and the sheep know each other. The relationship that Jesus here describes really is one that we often use to describe the intimacy and the vulnerability of marriage. To know and to be known. That's, that's sort of the, perhaps the, the ultimate expression of a, a marriage, the, the yearning that we have, the, one of the yearnings we have that move us towards marriage is a, a yearning to know someone else and to be known by someone else. And so I think... We see that connection uh, demonstrated through this picture of the the shepherd. So Jesus isn't just about collecting numbers. We know he had 12 disciples. We know he fed 5,000. The numbers are part of his ministry. But it's not just about collecting numbers. Jesus wasn't doing a happy dance because he had 3,000 at one big meal and 5,000 at the next and 10,000. He was doing the happy dance because the, the man that was born blind was healed and, and had confessed that he was going to follow Jesus, that he believed who Jesus was. Jesus knows his sheep. That means he knows you. That means he knows me. He calls his sheep by name. Think about that, that Jesus sitting on the throne of heaven today knows your name. But Jesus doesn't know our names in a school principal knows your name kind of way. Jesus knows our names because he cares for us. I don't know what your experience was with the school principal, um, 
If you were lucky, you didn't have any experience. Um, if you were very lucky, you knew the principal because you performed well. Principals tend to know the students that do very well. Or they also know those students spend a lot of time sitting outside the door of the principal's office. who spend more time looking at the sign than they do actually getting to know the principal. See, the principal knows those students, but they're not particularly, that's not particularly exciting. And so I think we can have the same attitude towards God to say, oh, well, God knows my name? That's not necessarily a good thing if we think of it like we do the school principal. One of the things about going to see the school principal is he knows more about you than you know about him. You never get to meet his wife. You know, he doesn't introduce you to his grandkids, you know, the pictures he has on his desk, what's his favorite music, um, what did he do on the weekend. Like, none of that. He knows you. He knows you did well. He knows you did bad. He knows your grades. He knows your report cards. He can look up all the information. But you don't know anything about him other than his name, pretty much, and what kind of punishments he likes to dole out. But that's not the relationship that we're talking about when we say that God or Jesus knows his sheep. We have uh, Jesus also wants to be known by us. And that's why we have the four Gospels that describe his life, his time here on earth. To know and to be known. It's no coincidence that Jesus' relationship with the church is often described as a marriage. Just as in the Old Testament, God's relationship with Israel is often described as a marriage. That's a mutual knowing, uh, not this sort of top-down power structure. So I think that those verses in John 10 are important in conveying this idea that, that um, God loves us. God cares for us. God wants to be among us and to be known by us. Next, I would turn to Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Because God values you. Jesus here is gathered with the crowd and he tells them, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So what does it mean to be known by God? The obvious answer, according to this, is that God knows how many hairs are on your head. Now, some of us are making that easier for God than others. But, but God knows about that. But it doesn't stop there. You know, God knows your weight. God knows your taste, not just your favorite songs, but why they're your favorite songs. You see, this isn't, um, God doesn't have an index of everybody's number of hairs that constantly updates just so 
he can have the right answer in some heavenly cosmic game of jeopardy between himself and the angels. This is a way of saying that God cares and knows about the smallest detail. About us. About you. And so, if we think a, a little deeper, we'll realize that, there, that God knows that there are some times when, when some of us feel as though we don't matter. Some of us feel isolated. Some of us feel unimportant. Some of us feel that we wouldn't be missed if we weren't here. And so God, uh, Jesus here in this, in this passage is telling us that we all matter to God. That a sparrow, just an ordinary common sparrow, you can get five of them for two pennies. I don't know who's buying and selling sparrows. I'm not sure what that trade was all about, but they're cheap. And Jesus says, you matter way more than a sparrow. The the, the message here is that God knows us because he values us. None of us are ever worthless in God's eyes. That's an intimacy that only God can provide. And then lastly, I'll, I'll turn for now, we could keep going, but I'll turn to 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. And, and here we read, This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. I want to just look at at verse 15 there. Because we see this play out in the, the blind man who went back to Jesus that said, you know, you are from God. Made this confession. And, and here the Apostle John writes, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, what happens then? Intimacy, knowledge. God lives in them and they in God. How, does, how could that happen? What's that describing? That, that sort of sounds strange. And, and we saw earlier at the, in verse 13, it says, this happens because He has given us of His Spirit. The Holy Spirit that lives within us, that allows us to live within God. When this happens, when we acknowledge who Jesus is, when we're joined with God, verse 16 says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. We know and rely or depend on the love God has for us. Is that your experience? That you know, you have confidence, that you can rely on the love that God has for you? Again, it's easier sometimes for us to think in the abstract, like God said, love the world. Right? Oh, God said, love yeah, sort of the world, the globe, the planet the people on the planet, in sort of an abstract, big-picture sense. But here, this 
this picture is very animate. Just as in that sheep pen, the shepherd knows the names of the sheep. The sheep can depend and do depend on the shepherd. We're told here, so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. I hope that's a confidence that you experience. That, that you can um, leave today with that awareness that, that you matter to God. And, and I think if we were to take that sheep pen imagery a little further and, and stretch it perhaps beyond what John intended, that, that we would say that, that for those sheep in the pen, they matter to each other. right? And, and so for, for the church, uh, I mean, they're not just going to let a robber come over, grab a sheep and, and head out and everyone else be silent. They're, they're, they're bleating and making a noise and moving around and, and doing what they can to make people aware that something's not right. And so as a, as a church, as, as a family of God, not only do we experience the love and depend on the love of God, then I hope that we are investing in the, those around us and reassuring them, ex- letting them experience that same Love that God has for, for each of us. And so, in John chapter 10, I said that, that Jesus wants to be known and to know. And I think John here in this letter captures that level of intimacy. God in us and we in God. Jesus announces, I am the gate. And the first thing that reminds us is that Jesus provides entrance to the kingdom of God. It's through him. In coming weeks, we'll spend more on that idea as we look at his statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The second point is that Jesus protects his sheep. I think in the middle of a pandemic, we kind of question that a little bit, which is why we're, we're going to spend time on that in growth groups. But the imagery of the gate is one of protection. And then third, Jesus is the gate. And gates don't go anywhere. Yeah. The good thing about gates, they sit there. They open, they close, but they're there when you need them. I think we need to know that about Jesus. That, that he's, he wants that familiarity with us and we have that familiarity because he's there. He's always there. The I am part of this statement means that he just is. He's a God of presence. And so, while the gate stays at, in the gap in the pen, Jesus does let his sheep come and go. From the pen. They're not leaving their faith or rejecting the kingdom of God. They're balancing this life between going into the world and, and taking the risks that come with going into the world in order to live, in order to experience life, and then returning to the pen and to the safety and to the care of the shepherd in the pen. They balance life outside and inside the pen. And so in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Jesus concludes this little section in this way. He says, I am the gate. 
Whoever enters through me will be saved, will, will be safe. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's a promise, isn't it? You see, when we think of the the gate, we have to think of this promise. That the sheep are going to come and go and the pen is always there for them to come back to. The gate is always there for them to come back to. And that safety and that security, that assurance that they're valued, allows them to go out and to live and live life to the full. Because they leave, or we leave, this place. We engage the world confident that our God hasn't gone anywhere. That our God loves us, cares for us, wants to know us, wants us to know Him. And that relationship, that purpose that we have in life from that relationship allows us to live in a different way. It doesn't say we'll be the wealthiest person. It doesn't say we'll, we'll be the most successful person, the most famous person. But it says that we can live life to the full. I think ultimately that's looking forward to eternal life. But in the presence, we live with purpose. We live under the watchful eye of our shepherd. And we live with Jesus as our gate. May you know that you live in God and God in you through his spirit. May you know and rely on the love God has for you each day.